Welcome to the Saving Lives Podcast. I'm Eddie Joe. My claim to fame on Instagram was taking apart journal articles and whatnot, but one of the things that I took apart and opened the eyes of a lot of people to was the contents of IV fluids. And the reason why I fixate so much on this is obviously details are very important in critical care, but during my course of training, uh, even, even learning about my own background for that matter, not many people are taught in a thorough manner, what are the contents of the IV fluids that we give patients? And, you know, for those people who work in the ER, many of you know that the first thing that people receive once they get into the ER is a liter of fluid or two. And we really have to understand what we're giving to patients because this could be very deleterious to their health. There's plenty of data showing how uh, being volume overloaded causes issues with people's lungs, GI tract, kidneys, etc. And I don't want to, I don't want to gloss over those facts, but, and that is something I'm going to discuss in this series, but it's something that we need to be very cognizant about as we try to do our best to take care of critically ill patients. And the purpose of this particular podcast today is going to be an introduction of of sorts to the IV fluids that we use in resuscitation. And I'm going to go over saline or what people call normal saline. I'm also going to go over Ringer's lactate or lactated ringers, depending on where you are geographically in the world. It has a different name, as well as plasmolite or normosol, which are which is one of the newest. And when I say newest, I mean it's been around since the 1980s. But it is another balanced salt solution that many of you are not familiar with. If you happen to be more of a visual learner as opposed to somebody who learns via podcasts, I have a very old, I want to say old, I think I created it in 2015, but I have a video on YouTube which is titled Resuscitation, Which IV Fluids to Choose, which has over 63,000 views at the time of this recording, which could help you out in deciphering which IV fluids to choose, as the title suggests, for patients who need IV fluids for resuscitation. Even though that particular video has the three types of IV fluids that I mentioned just a few moments ago, I've also created individual videos talking about saline, LR, or plasmolite that you could also check out if you want something a little bit more dedicated to that. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Let's start off by discussing something that's pretty basic, but at the same time, it's important for us to understand that the fluids that we infuse to patients does not stay intravascular. We want it to stay intravascular, but it just doesn't. Okay. And there's actually data to support this. Starting off with a publication in 2020, excuse me, in 2010 in Critical Care Medicine where they were infusing IV fluids into healthy volunteers. And they found that in one liter of IV fluids that was infused into a healthy volunteer, 68% of that fluid extravasated within one hour. Think about it. Only 32% of that fluid stayed intravascular. The rest of it said bye-bye, went into the tissues, went elsewhere. It did not stay in the patient's blood vessels the way we want it to. Then in 2001, they found in one of the, in one of the nephrology journals 
that 80% of one liter infused into critically ill patients is extravasated in one hour. I'm going to take a second for you to reflect on that. You give a patient one liter of fluid and they only keep 20% of it intravascularly in one hour. The other 80%, the other 800 cc's of that one liter goes elsewhere and it doesn't go anywhere good, guys. Then in 2013, in critical care medicine, they infused IV fluids into septic rats. I know septic rats are not people, that's obvious, but they found that even in septic rats, less than 5% of the fluids infused remained intravascular after three hours. <laughs> this is, this is, uh, doesn't stay in there, guys. Doesn't, doesn't stay in there as much as, as we all wish it did. It gets extravasated. And then in addition to that, consider the fact that residents per this particular study in, 20, in 2001 out of the UK, they found that more than 50% of residents do not know the sodium concentration of 0.9% sodium chloride. And I'm not going to be here pretending that I knew this and that I knew it my whole life. I did learn it at one point or another. But I want to go ahead and teach it to you all so that we all could be on the same footing as to why we have to be so careful in how we give patients IV fluids who are sick or are critically ill or septic. Anybody who needs fluids, we've got to make sure that we use it wisely. There's a fantastic article that's cited in the show notes that was published in 2008 by Sharif Awad, where he discussed, he and his team discussed the history of 0.9% saline. And one of the things that we've been taught historically is that this was invented in the 1980s during the cholera pandemic by Dr. Thomas Lara, that he was the father of saline solutions. But it's not the saline like we know and understand today, where you have 154 milliequivalents of sodium and 154 milliequivalents of chloride. Instead, what you had was a solution that had 106 milliequivalents per liter of sodium and 78 milliequivalents per liter of chloride. It also had some uh, carbonate in it, but it's not the it's not the, it's not the solution that has. 154 milliequivalents of sodium and chloride that we know and understand today. In addition, there were a number of different solutions created by different scientists between 1832 and 1883. And then in 1892, a Dutch physiological chemist by the last name of Hamburger was cited for suggesting that 0.92% saline was, quote, normal for mammalian blood. And this is where the whole normal saline started coming from because he produced some in vitro tests where he showed that 0.9% sodium chloride had less red cell hemolysis than other different types of concentrations. Then in addition to that, there was a similar breathing point to human syrup, not syrup, serum. But we don't know how an in vitro study was translated to an in vivo study. Was it cost? Was it convenience? We really don't know how it went on to become the, quote, normal saline, end quote, that we, that we call it today, when in fact, we know it's far from normal. That gives us a little bit of a background as to where saline came from. But now, let's look at LR. In 1876, Dr. Sidney Ringer, who was a clinical pharmacologist and a graduate of London University, observed the different physiological effects of various electrolytes on the heart of a frog, which is pretty cool. And basically used sodium chloride, potassium, calcium chloride 
in one liter distilled water and did different tests to find out what's going to be the best concoction for patients. Then in 1932, Dr. Alexis Hartman, who was an American pediatrician, noticed that the chloride in saline solution was making kids acidotic. So then he modified Ringer solution to include sodium lactate. And hence, that's why we have Hartman solution and that's why we have Ringer solution. Last up, let's talk about plasmolite. So plasmolite actually has two different names depending on the country. It could either be called plasmolite 148 or plasmolite A, pH 7.4. Just as some background, this, this plasmolite is made by Baxter Pharmaceuticals, which is the same company as, at least in the United States, that makes LR and also makes saline. I always get a lot of people who comment, hey, Eddie, by any chance, are you getting some sort of uh, speaker fees or something from plasmolite? And ultimately, I'd say no, but it's the same company that makes the other two. So chances are your hospital already has a contract with these folks. Nonetheless, what we know is that plasmolite was actually patented in 1982 by Baxter Pharmaceuticals. That's pretty cool because 1982 was the year I was born. So we have a little bit of a commonality there. And taking it apart, it was engineered to be similar to plasma as a physiologic or a balanced solution, where the sodium, potassium, chloride, and magnesium levels are similar to that that we would find in plasma. But obviously, it does not have calcium like LR does. I'll get more to that in a different podcast. But the osmolality as well as the pH are similar to plasma. Now, the generic type of plasmolite is called Normosol. That's made by Hospier Pharmaceuticals. I couldn't find any fancy backstory to it. Chemically, it's similar to plasmolite. And for most studies, you could actually extrapolate the plasmolite data and apply it to normal saw. So I guess that's, a, that's putting a wrap on this introduction to IV fluids lecture, where I'm going to be discussing a little bit more in detail the contents and the physiologic effects of all these fluids. I just didn't want to do it in one podcast, all in one shot, because... I'd rather break it, break it apart into smaller podcasts. Ultimately, let me know what you think. Whatever medium you are listening to this on, whether it be podcast or YouTube or somewhere else, please give me a thumbs up or sh- show some love with uh, giving me five stars or whatever, whatever you think I deserve for this effort that I'm putting into teaching you guys through this medium. Hope you all have a great day. Bye.